welcome to the Faith Chapter Podcast, where we explore your faith in the real world. Through interviews and the study of God's Word, we will gain insight into faith from people like you and me. I'm your host, Gio Marin. Join me throughout the week as we explore your faith chapter. Good evening, Andrews University. How was our day today? Yeah, blessed? Did we have a good day? I I have to tell you that all week I've been really nervous about the chapel talk that I gave this morning. Uh, Much more nervous than, than the evening meetings. I don't know why. Maybe it was just the whole you only have 20 minutes thing. And I can only, I can barely say my name in 20 minutes. Right? So... Anyway, I'm just happy that that's over with. I feel like a weight is lifted off of my shoulders. It went okay. And the, the Q&A with Kyle went really well. I was just afraid he was going to kind of stick it to me. But uh, he had mercy and, and it just is good to be here. I, I can tell you that uh, we've been doing a week of prayer over at the academy. And uh, I, I can say, in, in just so you know, an awareness of what's going on in your community, God is doing some really cool things over there in the morning. In fact, I'll just kind of open my heart to you here just for a moment. When Pastor Michael Getz actually originally asked me uh, to, to do the week of prayer over at the academy, I, uh, I said yes, because my mouth cannot say no. No, they've actually tried this. They've like hooked me up to little shockers and they've asked me questions like, hey, could you come over and, you know, vacuum our house? And I say yes. Um, and uh, so I, I try and I, I'll say Yes. And uh, so I ended up saying yes to what uh, uh, Michael had asked me to do. But I'll tell you, when I arrived here and I saw the schedule and I realized that we were going to be pretty flat out visiting students and doing things, I I wished I had said no. I told this, by the way, to the students today. Open my heart to them, confess to them. And I said, I'll be honest with you, when I came in the first morning, Monday morning, uh, I had a bad attitude. Not a bad attitude like I was going to act like a jerk, but I was just thinking, I really wish I had said no to this appointment because, you know, these are, these are academy-age students. They're not going to listen to what I have to say. You know, I'm going to have to, you know, juggle while standing on a ball, you know, to get there. To, Hello, can you hear me? Can you hear me? They're not going to be paying attention. The last week a prayer leader probably juggled chihuahuas and, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm just not going to be able to get through. But I'll tell you, true story. These students over there, 200 of them, uh, were so respectful, so attentive. I mean, they were just like, so locked in and in the zone. You were there, Rodley. I mean, it was awesome. And uh, it was just such a wonderful, beautiful thing that I went out of there so energized and thankful to Jesus that I had agreed to do it. And uh, now we've done Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we've done four of these last mornings over at the academy. And I sort of stress about the evening meeting, but I just look forward to that. That's like my vacation. It's just so awesome to go there and to be with these young people. And uh, this morning we had this beautiful prayer service. And I tell you, a really exciting thing is happening in your own community over there at Andrews Academy. Amen? I, I, I just cannot say with, with enough enthusiasm and sincerity just how impressed I am with virtually all of the young people I've met over there. I mean, it's just, there's a transparency, there's a vulnerability, there's a maturity, and uh, I, I had to repent before the Lord, and I confessed to them today. I said, Lord, I need to ask your forgiveness, because I went into this thing with a bad attitude, and uh, come Tuesday morning, I couldn't wait to wake up and go over. So too Wednesday, so too Thursday. In fact, I'll just let you in on a little secret, very interesting thing. After Monday, uh, I was, we were sitting there with a few of the students, and if you've been in the chapel there, there's a wall that has these sort of recessed bricks that stick out a little bit. And I said to Michael, I said, you could climb that. And he said, oh, I have. And I said, uh, w- would you mind? And he said, no, there's no teachers around. Do your thing. <laughs> so uh, so I, I got up on the wall, and there was just four students there, and I said, hey, this is just between us, you know. And uh, so I climbed across the wall. There's sort of three levels, and I climbed across the middle section. And uh, I was, it, was, it was just fun. It was just good to do it. And uh, so the next morning, Michael does this little interview with me. And he says, David, how many times have you been in this chapel? And I said, I've been in this chapel one time. He said, so this is your second time in the chapel. I said, yeah. He said, have you ever climbed the walls of this chapel? 
And I, I was like, are you really asking me this publicly? Like, everybody's there. The principal's there. The principal. And uh, I said, um, as a matter of fact, I have climbed these walls. Well, sure. I mean, no sooner is that said than, you know, the, the cry from the mob is, do it again, do it again, do it again. And I was like, there's no way I'm not going to climb this wall with all of you in here. So I said, no, 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 do it, do it, do it. And I said, okay, here's what we'll do. And I tried to, you know, pull a little trick on them. I said, I'm going to deliver the presentation. And if at the end, we have time and you remember, we'll do it. Okay, let's get into what we have to talk about. And I was off to the races, right? I just shut it down. Well, no sooner did I say, in Jesus' name, amen. Climb the wall! Climb the wall! And uh, so I was like, oh. And, and there was a couple teachers there, and I was looking at them. Surely they were going to get me off the hook, right? And this is one of your own academy student teachers. Are you ready for this? I said, uh, I really, I mean, that's not responsible, right? I can't do that in front of all. And he says, he says, it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. So I was like, all right, there's my kind of teacher right there, and these are my kind of students. So I said, here we go. So anyway, got up on the wall, started climbing. Well, there's two levels going across. Some of you have maybe seen those pictures. They're circulating because the moment you start doing that, every, you know, every single you know, recording device is out, you know, just climbing across the wall, and they're cheering, and I'm feeling you know, like, okay, I just don't want to fall. It's not very high or anything, but I get about midway across the wall, and then they start going, go higher, <laughs> higher. And there is one level higher, and I've been reluctant to do that the day before because I didn't want to, you know, fall. And here I'm in front of all these people. So I'm, I don't know. I was just like, Lord, all right, I'm willing to climb higher. Just don't let me fall. Climbed up there. Ah! These kids are going crazy. And anyway, made my way across. So if you hear a rumor <laughs> that Pastor Asherick was climbing around the walls in church, it's absolutely true. Okay. So... A really, <laughs> a really, really great thing is happening over there, and tomorrow we're going to be making a special appeal, and I want you to be praying that God will do something really awesome. Amen? All right, we're going to quickly pray here. We've got uh, quite a bit of material to cover tonight, and tonight is in, in many ways a very pivotal message, because if, if we don't get tonight right, we won't get tomorrow right. But if we get tonight right, we can get tomorrow right. And in many ways, this whole series, we're one, two, three, four, five, six presentations into this. The whole series is building to the next two presentations. Tomorrow night, Friday, is the grand climax of the covenant part. And then Sabbath morning, Saturday, here is the grand climax of the whole church part. And so we've talked about creation. Today we're going to wrap up some of that creation, talk about conflict, and tomorrow covenant, the next day church. So we're going to have a quick prayer, and we're going to get into the presentation. Let's go. Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you tonight, and we ask you to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Uh, I'm praying, as so many are, and as we've been praying all week, that you will bring revival and conversions and persuasion to people here. You know which one of those shoes fits the person that is hearing this prayer right now. Father, they need revival, then give revival. They need reformation, give reformation. They need conversion, give conversion. They need persuasion, give persuasion. Father, I can only preach one message in this time that we have allotted. And so I'm asking that in some supernatural transaction that you will take this one-size-fits-all message and tailor-make it to the individual circumstance, situation, and need here today. Father, this is a big one. We're going to be talking about that primordial, original conflict. And I'm sure this is one that the enemy will not be pleased to have out there and clear and understood. So please, give me clarity. Give all of us lucidity and comprehension. And more than that, give us passion and enthusiasm and uh, give us your spirit. That's what we need. We're praying in the name of Jesus. Let everyone say, amen. All right. Let's just quickly take stock of where we're at. This is the table of truth, and this is our first and, and normative truth that's on the table, and it is the central truth about which all Scripture uh, orbits, and that is the truth that, say it with me, God is love. And last night we asked the question, what is a God? And the answer is basically what? We don't know. We, we don't know exactly what we're talking about. And there are a number of words that we use, omnipresent, omniscient, omniscient omnibenevolent, and eternal, and, and immaterial, and all of that to sort of describe God. But these are words that basically mask our ignorance. But we do have in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and 16, an equivalence that is really, really helpful. And that's the one that we've just mentioned here, that God is love. 
Now, last night we talked about the fact that there's a kind of wall. You can just imagine a wall. It's not a literal wall. It's not a material wall, I don't think. But there is a very real sense in which the chasm that separates the created from the creator, that that's an impassable chasm. Not just for us here in, in the situation in which we find ourselves on planet Earth, but I am persuaded that that chasm is so big, so grand, so vast, and so impassable that it, we will never, even in eternity, fully grasp or understand what God is in his essential nature. It's just too big, it's too grand. And scripture, by the way, it speaks to this. This isn't just David's philosophical musings. It says things like, you know, God dwells in light that no man can approach, right? First Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. It says things like uh, when Moses said, you know, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Show me what you're like. Who are you? What are you? God says, okay, I can do that on three conditions. Number one, I put you in the cleft of the rock. Number two, I put my hand over you. And number three, you can only see my back because no one can see my face and live. These are sort of allusions to the fact that, that God is, is, is in some significant sense so different, so radically, fundamentally different from any created being that there will always be an element of mystery. There will always be an element of what? Mystery. And this mystery we're going to discover tonight is something that God's enemy, now he didn't start off as God's enemy, but he becomes God's enemy. He capitalizes on this mystery and he leverages two things. Number one, his own accessibility, his own proximity to the mystery, and number two, the fact of the mystery at all. And that's what we're going to try and talk about tonight. Um, we mentioned that the Bible, the, the whole of, of Scripture can be basically summarized, and I don't think this is an oversimplification, I do think it's a simplification. It can be summarized in three words, and who recalls what those words are? First, creation, then conflict, and covenant. Tomorrow night, covenant, now we've got to talk about conflict. But before we get into to the conflict, we need to sort of flesh out a little bit more this familial nature of God, and we talked about this last night. Love is, by its very nature, other-centered, right? Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. For God so loved the world that he gave. And so when John remarks that God is not merely loving, but love, he's making a statement about God's essential nature. In fact, I would go so far as to say that more than any other single passage we have in Scripture, this helps us to see a little bit of what's behind that wall, that thing that masks and hides God's essential nature. Now, we can't just, you know, go waltzing in any more than you could go waltzing into the most holy place of the heavenly or the earthly sanctuary. But think of it this way. It's as if, if you can imagine that sort of barrier here that separates the created from the creator, it's as if we can go up and look at a little peephole, right? And, and we can look through, and the peephole through which we are looking is this grammatical theological equivalence that God is love. In other words, we don't understand everything, but through this little peephole, we begin to understand enough to trust him, enough to trust him. And as we look in there, what we see is, is remarkable because there's not just one being in there. There's one God, but there's a, there's a family. There's a, there's a re relational thing going on inside of there. And we mentioned this last, last night, that, that Scripture, Orthodox Christianity, and, and Scripture, uh, of course, is the foundation for Orthodox Christianity, says, hey, there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so in this sense, because we're dealing here with a kind of divine society or community or family, right, we can say about this kind of a being that this being is in his nature love, not merely loving in his character or his behavior. Do you hear the difference there? And the way that we summarized that was by saying that, that creation did not make God loving, but God's love made creation. And so God, in a desire to share his triune love, he began to make, and here's the critical thing that I wish we really had a lot of time to flesh out, but we're just going to spend a moment on it. He makes something in his image. And I was really happy last night when I got onto my Twitter account to see that several of you had, had tweeted that line, which I think is so central to a, an understanding of the Old Testament aversion and repugnancy for idolatry, and that is that the reason that God hates idolatry so much is that it's an insult both to him and to humanity, because God has already imaged himself in you, right? You can't make wood or stone or metal, but now that kind of raises the question, what precisely is in the image of God. 
And the answer is, it's not males singularly or uniquely, neither is it females singularly or primarily. The thing that God makes in his image is a male and a female. And the first thing he says to the both of them is, be fruitful and multiply. So the thing that's in the the image of God in the most profound sense is not one gender versus another, but it's the actual family unit, this relationship. This what, everyone? A relationship. God, and by the way, we know this because in the biological kingdom, there are beings that reproduce asexually, right? And so God was under no, with the resources of omnipotence at his disposal, he was under no obligation to opt for sexual reproduction, to opt for this kind of compatibility. Well, why would he do so? Why make a man and a woman and say the two become one, and when they become one, then out of that is the procreative thing? Why? Because what God is establishing here is a basic relationality. This is the thing that's in my image. Not merely the male or merely the female, but the whole family unit is in my image. In fact, this really informs our understanding of what Jesus was saying when we come to the New Testament, what the gospel writers were saying about him when they said that he's the son of God. That he's the what? Son of God. And there are some in our midst that want to understand that term in a chronological sense, but that's not the best way to understand it. Let me sort of unpack this for you a little bit here. There are two primary figures in Scripture, other than Jesus, that are referred to as the Son of God. The first is Adam, right? In fact, let me just read that for you. Let me just read that for you here. Unlike Matthew's genealogy, which goes back uh, to Abraham, we're going to spend almost all of our time tomorrow on Abraham, Luke being almost certainly a Gentile writer, uh, goes back all the way to Adam. Let me just read that for you here. I'm in Luke chapter 3. We'll pick it up in verse, say, 35. The son of Sarag, the son of Rao, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Right? So in some very significant sense, Adam is the son of God. And I I love this idea here. Um, Let me just get the second one here in a moment. First is Adam is the son of God. And the other, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow, uh, when when Moses goes to the burning bush and uh, God says, go tell Pharaoh to let my, my son go, Israel, my firstborn. So there are two primary entities in the Old Testament that are God's son. How many entities? Two. And the first is Adam, and the second is Israel or the descendants of Abraham. That will become hugely significant for us tomorrow. Hang on to that. Okay? Hang on to that. But, but for our purposes here, we, we will come back to that. What we're seeing is that, that God, as a family unit, as a covenantal reality, he makes a family in his image. So this is what I'm like. The man and the woman together in in unity, in magnanimity, in mutuality, this is what I am like, right? And very interestingly, Ellen White, when she writes about the family of God, she uses it in two very distinct senses, and I think she's exactly on theologically. She speaks of the family of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? That's the family of God. But then there's also the sense in which the family of God is the broader reality of God's creation, particularly the human family. So that Adam is the son of God. That would make Eve the daughter of God. And and what God is creating here is this beautiful, ever-expanding, outgrowing uh, matrix of love that expands still further to another generation and dimension of love, to another, to another, to another, to another. That's God's sort of plan A. But what we find ourselves in here is this great parenthetical reality known colloquially to us as Seventh-day Adventists as the great controversy. And remember, the bookends for the great controversy, when Ellen White sat down to write it, what was the bookend? What did she write? God is love. In other words, the thing that's going to make this make sense is this. And I want to try and make a case tonight for, for that that you will find if not totally persuasive, at least stimulating enough to get you thinking that your life just might have more than temporal consequence, your life might be fraught with eternal consequence. So far, so good? 
So I'm going to go and we're going to talk about this this rebellion. We're going to sort of unpack how did this beautiful familial covenantal relationship, maybe I should just pause right there. Tomorrow we're going to be talking about covenant. I am deeply indebted to someone whose blood, sweat, and tears are all over this building and this campus, a man named Skip McCarty, Pastor McCarty. And several years ago, Pastor McCarty wrote a book called In Granite or Ingrained. And when I picked up that book, one of the the most formidable ideas that he brought into my intellectual sphere that I hadn't even thought about before was the reason that we see God relating to, to people over and over again on the basis of covenant. God makes a covenant with Noah. God makes a covenant with Abram. God makes a covenant with David. God makes covenant, covenant, covenant. And McCarty said the reason is because God himself is a covenant. That's natural for him. That's the natural way for a God who is himself a covenantal reality to relate to other social beings on the basis of covenant. And man, I tell you, when he, I thought, it's, it's one of those things that's been sitting in front of you all along, and then when you see it and hear it, you're like, of course, but of course. And so what ends up happening, this is where scripture goes from Genesis 1 and 2, this beautiful picture of creation, of love, of liberty, and of freedom. But even in Genesis 1 and 2, there are hints that there is a a superstructure of conflict, right? And I don't have time to tease out the textual data for that, but there's there's something here, there's a conflict, and we get no further than chapter 3 when the whole beautiful story goes... Right? And I want to sort of spend some, oh, at least five or ten minutes on Genesis chapter three, because here we encounter this enemy's MO, modus operandi, how he works. Now, before we do that, so you can, if you have your Bibles, you can go to Genesis chapter three. If not, you'll just be able to follow along with the story. But what we're going to see here is that whoever this being is, the enemy, and let me just pause here further still. We don't know what we're really talking about. We are trying to explicate the inexplicable, okay? We're just, we just have these little shadowy pictures and vignettes in Scripture, the fact that there is some conflict, and there are significant passages, especially in the Old Testament, that illumine the nature of this conflict, the nature of this controversy. Passages like Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and Job 1 and Genesis 3. And we're going to spend, in fact, I don't even think we'll go to Ezekiel 28 or Isaiah 14, not because they're not important. They're hugely important, but we're just not going to have time. We'll be able to get all that we need for our purposes here out of Genesis 3. But what we see is that this being right now, okay, this enemy, he leverages two things. How many things? Two things. And the first is he leverages the fact of the mystery that is the nature of God. Right? He capitalizes on the fact that God, as we've already been discussing, is necessarily mysterious by nature. That's one thing in and of itself. But then the next level is that Scripture reveals that, that inasmuch as it was possible for a created being to have access to God's essence, to the fiber and fabric of what makes God, God, he leveraged that with the angelic host who didn't share or possess the access that he had. And he essentially said, I'll just really, really, really simplify this. He basically said to the angelic host, look, I've been where you haven't been. I've seen what you haven't seen. I've heard what you haven't heard. And I, oh, I have looked behind the curtain of what makes God, God. And who is this guy? And frankly, I'm concerned. It sounds plausible, and don't think for a moment in your, you know, piety with every, you know, all 7% of your brain fully functioning, you know, don't think for a moment, don't stand there and think, how could they possibly have fallen for it? Part of the reason that, that, that this being, Lucifer's ideas, were able to get a basic traction is because of the mystery that is God. There was a plausibility, there was a believability, and he leveraged that access, and he leveraged the mystery that is God. Now let me just show you that in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we see a picture of this being, Lucifer, turned Satan, the enemy, the accuser, the deceiver. We see his MO. And I want to unpack it here, we're going to spend a few minutes on this before we transition. I'll just pick it up in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Two things we need to notice here. The first is, in our very first introduction to this enemy, 
We don't learn how powerful he is, that he is a formidable force to be reckoned with. No, not at all. And hardly. The, the chief characteristic that we encounter with this being, Scripture says he's cunning. There's a subtlety, there's an innuendo in his presentation. His strength is not in his power. In fact, I, I remember that uh, there's this uh, statement from, from uh, Ellen White where she's writing about, about Satan and she says, it's not an issue of power. She says that God could destroy Satan and his host as easily as a child casts a pebble to the ground. So we're not dealing with an issue of strength or of power here. It's not that he's so powerful. It's not that he's so formidable in that sense, but he's cunning. And when he approaches the woman, he asks, asks a question. And the question is a very interesting one because it actually takes and reframes something that God had said, but in a very different light. When God had placed Adam and Eve, his son and his daughter, in this garden, this place of pleasure and of delight and of beauty and of, of enterprise and of, of scientific inquiry, when he placed them there, there's a single verse here that I think is so fascinating when, when it sort of gives us a, a sense for God's parenting style. I'm speaking now to parent. I guess I'm speaking to all of you. You're either a parent or a child. Verse 16, it says, and I'm in chapter 2, it says, And the Lord God commanded man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Right? The emphasis here is on freely. Now, I have two boys, 10 and 12, Landon and Jabel. And uh, let me just let you a little insight into my parenting philosophy, my wife and I's parenting philosophy, and it goes a little bit like this. It's not, it's not unique with us, it's not new with us, but, but I, I really like the idea here, and tell me if you resonate with it. In raising two boys, especially high-energy, energetic boys, I have said to them, Landon, Jabel, if you want to do something, if you want to go do something, you want to engage in some, you know, activity and you think you need to ask your dad's permission, just assume the answer is yes. Now you might be thinking, what in the world? They're going to blow, yeah, they're going to start blowing things up and setting things on fire. What I say to them is assume that the answer is yes, because my natural disposition, as I've already told you, is to say yes. Right? They know that. But, but, but for this reason, boys, my natural inclination and disposition is to say yes to you because I love you and I want you to be free. In fact, it will always be yes. It will only be no unless the thing you're asking to do is either harmful or potentially hurtful to you or to somebody else. So assume a yes. Now what this does is it puts the responsibility on them to evaluate the activities that they want to do to say, to, to, before they ever come to dad to ask the question, is this the kind of thing that would be harmful to me or to somebody else? I'm trying to get them to think. I think that's more or less God's parenting style. He doesn't parent from the negative. And how many of us, you know, you begin to say, hey, mom, could I? No. <laughs> hey, dad, I was wondering if I could go over to... No. Right? And, and the posture that our parents assumed with us was often a posture of no and negativity and prohibition. But the posture that God takes in Genesis 1 and 2 is, hey, have your, knock yourselves out. Assume the answer is yes. In fact, the answer is always yes, except in this one case. In this case, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this is the only place where the answer is no, but in the rest of the garden, the answer is yes. Are you with me? So God parents by freedom, not by prohibitionism, not by force, not by manipulation. But look at when, when Lucifer comes, he says to the woman, has God really said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Where God had given a vast panorama of freedom and only a narrow, narrow window of restriction, the way that Lucifer frames the question, it seems like there's a vast panorama of restriction and just the narrowest window of freedom. And that's a word for you, especially you young people to hear. I hope you hear that. The very first temptation and deception that we encounter in Scripture is the idea that God is restrictive, that he's keeping something from you that it would be in your best interest to have. In fact, you could sort of think of this, here we have a little, a little tripod, right? One, two, three. And the, reasons that camera, the reason that cameras and microphones and other things are placed on tripods, it's a mathematical, it's very simple math, and that is that three points is the fewest number of points that form a plane, right? So you have basic stability as soon as you have three points. So far, so good. Here in Genesis 3, we're going to see a tripod of deception. Three points 
that stabilize Lucifer's basic argument against the kind of person God is. And the first one that he says is, God is essentially restrictive. God is essentially... Now, now fast forward with me to the New Testament just very quickly, and you encounter passages like this. If the Son shall make you free, you will be really free. Right? Here's another one. Uh, where Jesus goes into the temple there uh, in Luke chapter 4, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach, and one of the things that he's anointed me to preach is to preach blank to the captives. Freedom or liberty to the captives. I'm just super passionate right now about the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5, you find find Paul saying, for freedom, Christ has set us free. So freedom is a value with God. It's a fundamental core value with God. And yet, Lucifer here in his temptation suggests that in fact, God is restrictive. He rules by prohibitionism and not by freedom. That's the first. Now, the woman sort of senses that this doesn't sound quite right. And so, she comes to God's defense. She comes to the defense of God's word. But let me say something like that. God doesn't need defending. He needs believing. You don't need to rise to God's defense. He is perfectly capable of rising to his own defense. Thank you. It reminds me of the C.S. Lewis quotation when he was asked on one occasion, how is it, Mr. Lewis, that you, an Oxford scholar, defend the Bible? And he said, really? I defend the Bible in the same way that I would defend a caged lion. I simply let it out of its cage. (laughs) Right? So the woman senses that there's something not quite right here, and so she rises to God's defense, but God didn't need defending. He needed listening to. He needed believing, and he needed obeying. And the woman said to the serpent, we can eat of every tree of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, neither shall you touch it, or you will die. Now here's here's verse 4. Now that, the, now that the serpent has engaged her in a dialogue, he has her on his ground in a conversation. Then the serpent puts his cards on the table and says, you will not surely die. That's the, second, that's the second leg of the temptation. And he essentially says, God is not trustworthy. God is not trustworthy. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Did the old man tell you that? No, 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 no. That's not what's going to happen. God is not honest. God is not trustworthy. And as if that wasn't enough, number one, God is restrictive. Number two, God is not honest or trustworthy. Now he gives a motive where before he's only describing external behaviors. Now he imputes a motive as to why God is this way. And look at this, verse five, because God knows that in the day that you eat of that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Translation, God is keeping something from you and preserving it for himself. Right? Now here's where things get really interesting. The motive of selfishness, the motive of self-preservation has been attributed to God. God is basically looking out for himself. Now, the rest, of, uh, the rest of the story is a mere consequence of this kind of thinking because, number one, if God is restrictive, and number two, God is basically dishonest and untrustworthy, and number three, the reason is he's looking out for himself. The insinuation by the serpent is, hey, look, if you want to get with the program, you better look out for yourself because that's the way the universe, it's a jungle out there, girl. You better start looking out for yourself, right? And so it says that she takes the, the, the fruit and she eats of it, and we think, there's the sin. Oh, come on. The actual physical taking of the fruit and eating of it is, is an almost a, a natural and inevitable consequence of the thinking that she is now engaged in, and that's the point. See if you can get this. Eve's sin followed a false picture of God. Not the other way around. What created the physical act of sin, this was hardly the point, right? That was significant. But, but all this is, is what follows when you believe that God is like that. Why would he be believed? Why should I be loyal? Why should I? Why? God is restrictive. God is not trustworthy. God is basically looking out for himself. Well, by all means. It's as if, the, think of it this way, a computer analogy might help. It's as if the old hard drive has, has to be ejected. A picture of God as good and gracious and kind and magnanimous and creative and clever and, and, and ruling by freedom. You have to get rid of that and now you bring in a new hard drive. This is the real picture of God. This is what he's saying. And once you believe this about God, sin is inevitable. 
Did you get that? Sin is an inevitable and natural consequence of having a false picture of God. So if you take this off the table and you put some other God on there, now the only motivation to not sin is a fear of punishment and not a genuine love for the kind of being that God is. Do you feel this? Think of it this way. Many of us take a very shallow, perfunctory view of sin. We think it's like spilled milk, right? And so we, we, we're there at the table and we're eating and we say, oh, we spilled milk. Oh, there's milk spilled. Well, this is hardly, you know, this, you don't call the fire department. You just wipe it up. Just go ahead and wipe that up. And many of us take a view of sin that's just like that. We think, oh, the problem is sin. The answer is stop doing it. It's easy. It's that easy. It's a simple problem with a simple solution. Au contraire, mon frère, it's a marvelously complex problem and it's a relationally complex problem because what led to sin was a breakdown in the trust that she had of the kind of person God was. You see, if it's not merely spilt milk, if the reason that Eve and others have fallen into a lifestyle of rebellion and disobedience and sin because the their basic picture of God is wrong, then the only way to solve the sin problem is to solve the picture of God problem. And now we're laying the ax to the root of the tree, not merely stop doing that. Well, lots of us have tried to stop doing that and we failed miserably. Are, are you with me? Yes or no? So there's something else at work here. There's something else. Now, of course, when she partakes, her eyes are open. She brings to Adam and his eyes are opened. And now this is where things get really fascinating, really interesting. Just a quick word before we get there. This is Lucifer's MO. And if we had time, we could go to Job chapter 1 and we could show you that same MO right there. We could go to Ezekiel 28 and we could see that same MO right there. We could go to Isaiah 14 and see the same MO right there. In fact, maybe just one quick verse. In Luke chapter 8, it's a story, I'll just tell it to you. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus has sailed across the Sea of Galilee and he's come to a place called the Gadarenes. And when he steps out, onto the shore of the Gadarenes, two demoniacs come rushing him, right? And there's an urgency. They, 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 they rush to Jesus, and I want you to feel the force of this. Now, maybe I should just pause and ask the question, what's a demon? Fallen angel, very good. Okay, so those that were persuaded that found Lucifer's arguments about who God was plausible. And so these, these demoniacs come running to Jesus with a sense of urgency. It's actually more than just a sense of urgency. It's a sense of outright fear and terror. And look at what they ask. They say, we know who you are, son, Jesus, son of the most high God. We know who you are. Have you come to torment us before the appointed time? Now let me just ask you a simple question. If they are pleading with their lives, please, no, don't torment us. Here's the question. What do they believe about the character of the person who just got off the boat? That he's the kind of being that would go out of his way to come to your neighborhood just to make your life miserable. You with me? Except the grand truth is, the grand truth is that Jesus had not come to torture. But as we've already learned, to be tortured. Our point here is, where did they get this idea? Where'd that come from? Well, it comes from this primordial, this primordial deception where somebody claims to have had access to what's really going on back there and has pitched that access. And people are buying it. We see Eve buying it. We see uh, the, he makes his pitch there in Job chapter 1. He makes his pitch in Ezekiel 28. We see it. This is the MO, and the MO centers around the breaking of trust by painting, and we, we, we talked about this just yesterday. We had, this was our last quotation as we ended yesterday, and, and it was from Great Controversy, page 569. It is Satan's constant effort to misrepresent the character of God. So he wakes up in the morning, first item on the to-do list, and only item on the to-do list, misrepresent God's character. And I wanna say to you, all of you out there, I've said this before, I'm gonna say it again, Religion can be wrong, but God cannot. Many of us are justified in our basic rejection of bad religion. I want to stand with you and in solidarity with you in a rejection of bad religion. And by the way, our own church is not immune from some, some pockets of bad religion. Can somebody say amen to that? 
It's not just the people across the street that have problems. We can have some bad religion here. And so by all means, with all of the energy and vigor and vim that you can muster, reject bad religion. But as you are rejecting bad religion, don't, please, no, don't reject God because God hates bad religion as much as you do. We together? It's one thing to be upset with the church. It's one thing to be upset with a local pastor or a local deacon or a local, you know, whatever, a, a, a person that hurt you. That's one thing. But, but don't transfer that. Don't project that onto God because God is not like that. Now, here's where things get really fascinating. God comes into the garden in the same way that he had. He comes into the garden in the same way that he did, had. In fact, the very last verse of Genesis chapter 2 is kind of weird, this enigmatic, kind of strange, almost like hippie commune type verse. It says that Adam and Eve were naked and they weren't ashamed. You just see them almost very like frolicking amongst the trees, you know? And uh, I know that some dear saint is going to say, they had a robe of light. I get that. I get that. But it must have been at least somewhat translucent because it says they were naked, right? But there was a nakedness and they weren't ashamed in the same way that a baby is not ashamed, Right? A baby's not ashamed. And, and that idea of shame becomes a pivotal idea in Moses' unpacking of Genesis, what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Because when, when God comes down into the garden, Adam and Eve's first instinct when they hear the voice of God is to hide. And why are they hiding? Because they're afraid and they're ashamed. Now this is where things get really awesome. Check this out. They have a sense of guilt and of rebellion. They know that they have done wrong and when they hear God's voice, don't miss this, this is crucially important. When they hear God's voice, they assume, they what? They assume that the feelings of shame and guilt that they are now suffering under, emotions that God never intended them to experience, they assume that the feelings of guilt and shame that they're suffering under right now are an, an actual reflection of God's attitude toward them. Do you get that? They think they're running from God. But as the story unfolds, God has come down into the garden for one reason. And that's to announce the good news that a way of escape has been made from the sh sin and the guilt. This is amazing. God is coming in to announce the good news that a forthcoming Savior will come and that it will be costly to that Savior. But when they hear the voice, they make the assumption, he's out there, and they flee. In fact, notice this slide here. Here is a series of emotions that they begin to experience. First of all, shame, which we've mentioned. Assuming that that is a reflection of God's attitude toward them, they are naturally fearful, right? Then scripture says that they tried to make uh, fig leaves to cover themselves, which is just a sign of self-dependence. Hey, it's the jungle out there, girl. You gotta look out for yourself. And right now, they're trying to look out for themselves. Not just covering the body, but hiding. And when God finally comes and uncovers uh, the situation, their immediate natural instinct, where moments before they couldn't imagine life without one another and they were in perfect community, now it, it resorts to blaming because that's the, that's the way reality works. It's all about selfishness. Well, the woman that you gave to be with me, she said, well, the serpent, you're the one that put the serpent in the garden. Right? Now it's not about truth. Now it's not about the other. Now it's about me and protecting my situation and blaming is just the, the sort of final piece of trying to preserve one's own situation and standing. And at this point, the whole nature of their relationship has changed. It has what? Changed. And it changed because of distrust. Distrust. I can say this. If you get nothing else from this, and I hope you'll get more, if you get nothing else from this, get this basic idea that sin follows a false picture of God and what you believe about God has actual, dramatic, practical implications for how you will live your religious life. If God is largely a tyrant, if God is largely a, a, you know, a distant bureaucrat, if God is an exacting accountant, whatever the picture or portrait that you have of God in your mind will become the determinative factor in your behavior toward him. But what if God is love? What if we, what if we desire to not sin and to not be in rebellion against God, not because it's our duty or our responsibility primarily, but because we love God and we would never want to do anything that would hurt him. And we learn that he would not want to do anything that would hurt us. Now the whole issue of motivation comes into play and it's not merely a spilled milk. And I tell you, I hear a lot of 
Not a lot. I hear some. I want to be fair. I hear some preaching both in and out of the Seventh-day Adventist church that basically makes it out. It's just overly simplistic and it's insulting in some ways. It's, you're a sinner, you need to stop sinning, and that's the end of it. And God is waiting for people to stop sinning so he can come and take you home. Hurry up and get busy not sinning. Right? And so we go to our room and we say, that's it. I'm not going to sin. And we just basically duct tape. Just wrap, hey, could you, you ask your roommate, could you wrap me up? Just wrap me up in some tape. Right? And um, so now you're, you're good. You're golden, right? I'm sure you've noticed that a cadaver can keep eight of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> right? It's true. You will not commit adult, and you're not, you can't even get your pants off. You can't do anything, right? You're going to have a difficult time stealing, you know? So, so if, if really, if this is the, if the, if the root problem is that God just needs to get our physical appendages and our phalanges to stop doing the wrong things, right? There are more than one way to deal with that. But what if the problem is a heart problem? And these are merely just manifestations of what's going on in here. And this is what C.S. Lewis calls the eternal mystery. And somebody is bound to protest, and I appreciate the protest, and I hear the protest. Somebody is bound to protest, well, why did Lucifer sin? What went wrong? Are you ready for the answer? We have no idea. We have no idea. In fact, this is a little philosophical, but follow me if you can. If, you lose, if I lose you, that's okay. I am persuaded there are only two things without cause in the universe. The first one's easy. God. God never had a cause. Nothing caused God. He always has been. He is the great I am. He always was, he always will be, and he always is. So far, so good? God has no cause. The other thing that has no identifiable communicable, uh, findable, discoverable cause is sin. It is without cause. You say, well, what caused it? Nothing caused it. It sprang up spontaneously, even, even serendipitously in the heart of a being. And when it was explained to this being, this is the nature of the thing that has sprung up in your heart, he then, and this is where it becomes a mystery. We can't explain it. It is inexplicable. In fact, I, the thing that I say, I, I believe, is that this kind of sin is actually a form of insanity because sin is distrusting a being who has never given us a reason to distrust him. right? Sin is distrust of a being that, that we've never had a reason to distrust. It's a form of insanity. And, and as it springs up in the heart of one Lucifer, as it, as it springs up, we say, well, what caused it? That, that, it nothing. I, I like the way that, uh, that uh, some have said, if sin could be explained, it could be excused. It is perfectly inexplicable. The, the Bible actually calls it at one point the mystery of iniquity. We don't know what it is. It just came. It came onto the scene. And there's actually a very important little philosophical point here. There could not have been an antecedent cause to sin. Otherwise, God would somehow be culpable or, or chargeable. Satan has to be, or Lucifer, has to be the beginning and the end of the reason for it. Otherwise, God is implicated and is culpable in the thing. The thing originated with him and the thing was, was bound up with him. And God did everything he could to persuade, to invite, to, to try and explain. But he persisted in his picture. He persisted in his rebellion. And in some ways, this is where things get... Uh, very fascinating, when, when God began to make his kind overtures toward Lucifer, who had lost trust in God, these kind overtures were now, now actually viewed as manipulation. You're just trying to manipulate me. You're trying to manipulate me. Because what happens is, when you decide that you're going to see the world in a certain way, you're going to see a person in a certain way, you're going to see a situation in a certain way, when you decide that you're going to do that, you, you put on a set of glasses that enable everything you see now that that person does, you read and you might be reading it wrongly. And now God's kindness is viewed as manipulation. God's kindness is viewed as coercion and, and, and uh, politicking when in fact God was genuinely, legitimately extending himself. You see, it's right here at this point, this point of conflict. Scripture hinges on this. And there have been a, a number of, of uh, uh, researchers over the years that have, that have read the writings of Ellen White and have said, in essence, what was the unique 
you know, scarlet thread that runs through her writings, her unique contribution, and researcher after researcher after researcher has said, it's this contribution of the fact that all of this is not happening in a vacuum, it's happening in a cauldron of controversy. That God is in conflict. And the kind of conflict he's in is a relational conflict where, and this is what we'll close on, God as a family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? as a family, had chosen to extend the parameters and borders of that family so that the family of humanity became locked with the family of God, right? So there was beauty, there was unity, there was connectivity. But what we see here in Genesis chapter 3 and the other passages, if, if, if we were going to go there, is that that basic unity was shattered over a lack of trust in the person that God is. And so that connectivity that was here between the family of humanity and the family of God is broken and breached, And this is the state in which we're living right now. God's hand is extended, and as we're going to discover tomorrow, it's extended in covenant to repair the breach, to bring the family back together. He reaches out to his son Adam, and later he reaches out to his son Israel, the two sons, to bring the family of humanity back into relationship, back into covenant with the family of God. This is where we're at right here. It's relational. Sin is built around this, this idea, this grand controversy of who is, what's behind the curtain? What's behind door number one? Who is back there? What is he like? Can he be trusted? And you say, well, explain it. It's inexplicable. It is perfectly inexplicable. It is, it is as inexplicable as God's own nature. It is, it is a necessary mystery. And the points I want to drive home here are that God as a family creates a family in his image and that familial connectivity is broken by distrust. What's the only way that this relationship could ever be restored? By regaining what? Trust. By regaining trust. That reconnection between the family of God and the family of humanity, that's the only way. And Satan's MO, and I want to speak to this issue right here, we wrap up. With you is the same as it has always been, and that is that God is restrictive, that God is untrustworthy at some level, and that God is basically looking out for himself. And every other temptation is in some way wrapped up with this false picture of God. Remember that when Eve partook of the fruit, the actual eating of the fruit, whatever it was, was simply the logical outflowing of her belief system. So how are we ever going to change these forbidden fruits in our lives? How are we ever going to become the better, more godly, more beautiful, more loving, more gracious people that God created us to be? The answer is not by just stopping doing wrong things and starting doing right things. The answer revolves around we've got to put our trust back in God. Because if sin is caused by a false picture, then, then victory over that sin and rebellion will be, will be from a true picture of our heavenly father, our dad. Amen? All right, with that in mind, we've been through creation, we've talked about conflict, and tomorrow we're going to see that the means by which this restoration will take place is covenant. And I want to plead with you, in fact, I want to plead with you not just for you to be here, not for my sake, but for your sake, for all of our sakes. I want to plead with you to grab a friend, grab a a roommate, grab somebody, and get them to the meeting tomorrow night, because the thing I want to share with you tomorrow night has literally, and I'm not just using homiletical uh, you know, device here, it, it has been paradigmatic. It has been life-changing in my experience, the thing I want to share with you tomorrow night. And I believe, I really believe, that if you will see it and you'll embrace it in the context of everything we've been talking about up to this point, in many ways, every single presentation has led up to tomorrow night. When you see it, it could just be the thing that transforms the rest of your, not just your religious life, but the rest of your life in general. Amen? So I'm pleading with you to be here tomorrow night. And Rodley, with that, I'm going to invite you up if you're ready. So thank you, Pastor Ashrick. Now, you let the cat out of the bag. You confessed to everyone here that you did climb there. Yep, it's true. And Andrews Academy. And so the question, of course, came in. What, what did? Can you climb the walls of the church like you did at the academy? No, these are much too difficult. They don't have any recessed bricks, and I would never even dream of upsetting Dwight Nelson. 
Can you imagine? Good call. Good, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, you see him up front. He's a lamb up front, but I think mm. he could be a lion if circumstances require yeah. it. Okay. <laughs> so we'll leave these walls alone then. We'll until, you know, he's an old man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. Is, is this being live streamed? No, no, no. Please. That's it. Dwight, if you're yeah. watching. <laughs> All right. So let's go back to the beginning of your message a little bit. Okay. You said that male and female together represents the image of God. Yep. So someone asked, well, what if you're single? Is that like half the image of God? How does that work? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good question. No, no, certainly, certainly not half the image of God. But the, 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 that does, it doesn't take away from the fact, the fact that a single person, God's ideal mm-hmm. for humanity is that humanity is a social being right? We're, yep. we're social beings. In fact, when you look at Genesis 1, it says it was good. It was good. It was good. God saw the light. It was good. This was good. This was good. This was good. The only thing that wasn't good is when he says it is not good that mankind should be alone, All right. right? Now, there are some people that are called to singleness, and I get that, but they're the exception and not the rule. And if you're single right now, you know, you know stressing and thinking, man, I'm 21. What's going what, what's to happen? Am I ever going to find... <laughs> it's going to be okay. You can... Find the other half of the image of God someday. No, seriously. (laughs) Seriously, though. um, The thing that is most profoundly in God's image is a selfless, magnanimous, covenantal relationship. Okay. And you can have that. Even if you're single, you can have that with other people. But when someone's up in your stuff all the time, They're like, what's this person doing in my bed? What's this person doing in my shower? What's this person doing in my kitchen? Well, then now you got it. You get lots of opportunities to not be selfish. Okay. (laughs) So it's not just about the married or single, but about this covenant relationship. That's right. That's right. Okay. Getting to Genesis 3 now. Why was a restricted tree created? If not the tree, would man have fallen a different way, maybe? Possibly. Yeah, there's no question that there is a kind of Um, Moses, no doubt, has taken a kind of poetic license here to simplify the story. And we don't have every single detail. In fact, we're going to talk about this tomorrow night. You know, Genesis 1 to 11 is the most hotly contested and debated passage in all of Scripture by far. I mean, there's just, that is the passage around which, you know, you're either a fundamentalist or whatever, or or you're, you know, whatever. Um, So, Moses is very intentional in writing Genesis 1 to 11. He is racing to get to Genesis 12, which is the story of Abraham. And I'll just give you a little bit of the punchline tomorrow night because in Moses' thinking and later in the New Testament thinking, the call of Abraham is the answer to the sin of Adam. Mm. Right? So he's racing through about 2,000 years of earth's history. I mean, just Genesis 12. Mm-hmm. So there is definitely a sense in which we don't have every single parameter and detail of the creation account. I mean, it's general, it's accurate, it's historical, but it's a sketch. Okay. And so, yeah, it's entirely possible that there could have been some other way, certainly, to have fallen. Okay. And, and you're going to flesh this out tomorrow? Yeah, tomorrow night. Tomorrow right. night. Now, this is a question that I think most people have probably had before. Okay. Why did God create Lucifer if he knew that he was going to sin? Yeah, it's a really good question, mm-hmm. and it's actually not as complex as we make it. Okay. It's part of what we answered last night when we talked about the video game, you, or the, not the video game, but the sports game that you video, that you pre-record. Mm-hmm. As long mm-hmm. as God's foreknowledge is not causal, then you still are free to do what you want to do. And I mentioned this, but I actually forgot to go back to it. This is what C.S. Lewis calls the eternal mystery. He says, of all the miracles that God ever did, Surely the greatest miracle that he did was to create something that was capable of actually resisting him. That is the eternal mystery, because without that mystery, no other, that's the, that's the great miracle, because without that miracle, no other miracle is even possible. We won't, we won't have a story that needs miracles. God forms a thing that is capable of resisting him, and somebody says, well, well he knew. Well, he knew. Well, surely, but here's the point. Now we get back to the question about why doesn't God intervene in the Holocaust, why doesn't God intervene there? And I, I found out who asked that question. It's a great question. Mm-hmm. Um, if we say, okay, so God just now blinks and uncreates Lucifer, right? It, if it wasn't Lucifer, it could have been Tom or Marilyn or Randy. Or, so what is God going to do now? If, now, that doesn't mean that sin is necessary or inevitable. 
But okay. if it's not him, it could be somebody else. And so what does God do? Just blink them out of existence and blink them out of existence and blink them out of existence and blink them out of existence. So what do we have now? Now we don't have reality. Hmm. We have a manipulative, con- contrived aquarium that appears like reality. And here's the fascinating thing. Everybody would be totally content with that. We wouldn't know the difference. There's only one being that would know the difference. Hmm. And that's God. God would be the one who's getting gypped and he would know it. What God wants is a real relationship with real beings that can really say no. Mm. And the only way to do that is to give people actual freedom, what Lewis calls the eternal mystery, the ability of the creation to resist the creator. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good. So it has to have that freedom. has to be there. Mm-hmm. Okay. In fact... In some ways, freedom is as fundamental to the universe as love is because love requires freedom. What about this? Okay, bring it. Isn't sin inevitable regardless of our view of God? Because you kind of made an association, right? You said um, if we have a proper view of God, right? Yep, 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 yep. The answer is yes, if Jesus had never come. Flush that out. Okay. If Jesus had never come, you could not resist sin no matter what your view of God was. But the fact that Jesus has come and has shown us what God is really like, now ceasing to be in rebellion against God is an option because God in Christ has come and lived for us, he's died as us, and he has risen to rescue us from sin. So if Jesus had never come, you're stuck. But the fact that he has come, the option to be unstuck is available. And it's not just available, it's pervasive. It's all around you. God is longing for you to believe of the revelation of himself in Christ. And there's victory there. There's beauty there. But the way we typically teach victory over sin is not the best way to teach it. And I'm going to do my best to try and show what I think it's really all about. That's tomorrow night in okay. covenant. It's a real important message tomorrow. Hugely Everything's important. Everything's building up. I would right. say, if somebody could say to me, David, I could come, I can either come to all six of the messages or to tomorrow night. Which one should I come to? Like if they could have said in the beginning, I'd say, just come to Friday. If you could only come to one, come to Friday. Wow. Yeah, it's huge. We've got to be there. Just two more. Okay, two more. How do you help someone who has been hurt by bad religion within the church and can't move past these acts? Hmm. It's, it's without, the, as a pastor you know, mm-hmm. without the specific details of the situation, it's impossible to say. It's like, how do you help someone with a bad marriage? It depends on what the nature of the bad marriage is. But the, the, the thing I can say, and I hope that you, this scratches where you're itching, is that you have to look past people to Jesus. I know that might sound pious, it might sound platitudinous, it might t- sound too simple, but people will let you down, right? Mm-hmm. Rodley, you and I have had a great time this week. I mean, yeah. I have, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm having a bit of a bromance here with yeah, you, if I can just too. say that. <laughs> I have, I have just fallen in love with your person, with, with I mean, we've had some great times together, yeah. but dare I say it, that if we spend enough time together, you're going to disappoint me and I'm going to disappoint you. Probably. It's going to happen, mm-hmm. right? Okay. It's going to happen. And that's just the nature of, that's the nature of the situation. Mm-hmm. It's the way mm-hmm. that it is. And if you've been seriously and significantly and serially disappointed in people, let me just, let me give you a piece of advice. Mm. Jesus will never disappoint you. Mm. He will never let you down. He will never be a hypocrite. He will never turn his back on you. He will never snarl at you when you come into church dressed as you were dressed. He will never, ever, ever in any way turn you away. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. So in as much as it's possible, and I'm not pretending like it's easy. I'm not. Look away from people. Look to Jesus. And if you're going to say, well, there's all these people that are, you know, turning me away, mm-hmm. then you've got, to, you've got to be fair to the situation and say, well, what about all the godly people in church? Mm-hmm. What about the good people who are genuine, who are sincere, and who are drawing? Right? So mm-hmm. if you're going to complain about these, look to these, but especially look to Jesus. Amen. All right, last question. Bring it. How do you begin to change your view of God? That's a really practical question. I suppose it would happen differently for a lot of people. Uh, we're going to go back to the answer that we just had there. You, to, to Jesus. Jesus is the mm. fullness of the Godhead bodily. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen mm. the Father. And as simplistic and pedestrian and elementary as this might sound, 
take your picture of God, whatever is on that table, that table mm-hmm. of truth, mm-hmm. and ask yourself, is this consistent with Jesus? At every point, you've got to come back to Jesus, come back to Jesus. And if your picture of God is somehow not compatible with the picture of Jesus that we see in the Gospels, mm-hmm. then you've got, to, you've got to reorient because Jesus is the template. Jesus is the one. And so my answer to that is go back and read the Gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Read them again. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Read them again. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And just keep telling yourself, this is God. This is God. This is what God is like. This is the kind of person God is. And it will be revolutionary hmm. in your mm-hmm. understanding mm-hmm. Of your, and your picture of God. Thanks so much. Thank you, Rodley. Thank you for joining us. I pray you have been blessed. Let's keep in touch and we can make our time together interactive. Find us at faithchapter.org. You can leave a prayer request or sign up for Bible studies. You can also find out how you can ask a question on the program. Follow us also on Twitter at Faith Chapter. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, keep writing your Faith Chapter.